0: It sure is good to see you this evening, and hopefully you've had a chance to walk over and grab coffee or a little snack. We've got a table over there for you, so feel free to do that. I want to welcome our live stream audience tonight. Thank you for joining us. This is always a real thrill to come together and fellowship and, and uh, have opportunity to study God's Word. So uh, we're going to go ahead and get started this evening. We have been in 2 Samuel, and uh, we've already completed 1 Samuel. Tonight we're in chapter 6. We're going we're to start just a moment after we pray. Uh, as, we, as we pray, let's keep in mind uh, people all around us who are struggling, who are suffering uh, with COVID and other things that are happening in their lives. I, I have a funeral Saturday At 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I want to share this with you because uh, I would love to see you come if you could. Uh, Don Aldridge, a member of our church, Don was a wonderful man, and he had some physical issues that he was struggling with that were very significant, and then he came down with COVID and he passed away. And so uh, we're having that service at 2 o'clock this coming Saturday at Crossroads, uh, I want to say Crossroads Community Church or Fellowship, it's in Sebastian. I think it's on US1. Okay, yes. And so we'll be there at 2 o'clock on Saturday for that, that special time of remembrance for, for Don. And I know that it would mean a lot to his wife, Laura, those who can make it. Uh, we met last night as elders and had a wonderful time of, of prayer uh, over the, the body and took quite a bit of time just to kind of work through each name and what's going on. Uh, we've got so many people that are facing different kinds of physical issues, uh, could be marital issue. Uh, there's just so many things that right now come to the surface, especially when you're in an in a climate or an environment of COVID. It just, it just magnifies, you know, everything else. And uh, so let's keep people in prayer if we can tonight. So important that we do that. They're counting on us to pray for them. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but I have, where you're so sick, you can't even pray for yourself. You can't even think to pray. And at that point, you just need others to lift you up, you know, before the Lord. And, of course, we know that the Holy Spirit is praying for us. He's interceding in our behalf. I'm thankful for that. But uh, we do have opportunity tonight to lift them. And uh, so let's do that now. Lord, as a church family, we are so thankful that when we fall into trials and temptations, that we have an advocate with the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. We're thankful that, Lord, uh, we're able to lift up these requests before you. Jesus taught us that when we pray, we pray to the Father, our Father who art in heaven. And so that's what we do tonight. We come before you, Father, knowing that You're a God who loves each person in this room and every human being that's ever been created. And You have given everything we need for righteous living, for joyful living. And yet we live in a fallen world, so we too fall prey to temptation. We fall prey to sin, sickness, and disease. And You said that if it rains on the just and the unjust alike, that the sun rises on the just and the unjust and so we know that, Lord, we're, we're not going to go through this life without ever having some kind of a trial. In fact, that's how you grow us. That's how you mature us is through trials. And so our prayer tonight is for those who are suffering and hurting. And yet, Lord, as we pray that you would touch and heal, that you would reach each and every circumstance, every situation that our members are facing Yet we also know that you're probably using those things to continue to grow them, just as you're doing the same in our lives. And we're thankful that, God, you're a, you're a heavenly Father who wants to mature us, wants to grow us beyond our current growth. And so we thank you that, uh, that you can use anything and everything to do it, and we give you the praise and the honor for the times when we ask for healing and you provide healing for the times when we ask you to deliver out of a dire situation and you actually deliver. And you always deliver, but it might not be in the time or the way that we think. But Lord, we are your children. You are sovereign God. We come under you and we thank you for the opportunity to intercede for our friends and family members. And Lord, we also just pray for our community. Father, so many people are impacted right now. I, we've got several folks in hospitals and... We're learning that uh, those hospitals are absolutely overwhelmed with the number of cases that they're facing, that people are having to wait days in order to receive like a stress test uh, because there's not enough, uh, there's not enough uh, nurses and doctors that are able to help. The need is so great. And, and then there's other situations where someone who might be in a room and asking for help Uh, from a nurse and pushing the button, and still no one comes, because not because they don't care. There's not enough staff on the floor to keep up with all the needs. So our heart goes out tonight to medical staff and teams in the hospitals, in the clinics around town. I pray that, God, you give them supernatural strength. I pray that you lift their hearts, that they not become weary in well-doing where they actually decide to just walk away that they're so overwhelmed they can't cope with it and they walk away I pray the same thing in our educational system as teachers now return to the classroom students begin to come in and we understand that over a thousand new high school students have come into even just Vero Beach High School or or in our county and and having the staff to handle that and manage that It's difficult, and so we pray for the administrative staff. We pray for teachers. We pray for support staff. We pray for the students, Lord, that you would watch over them, that you would give them understanding. I pray that you would open their eyes to see the truth and that anything that is absolute truth is from God. It is from the Bible, and that they would recognize it for that. And we just lift these things up, Lord, believing that you're a God who desires that we pray for these things, And that when we pray with faith, believing that, Lord, often we see a strong move of the Lord. And that's what we're asking for in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, As we get started, let's uh, look at verse 1. We're now in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel. What's interesting in this study is how uh, David is finally... Sitting on the throne, he is the king. Last week, we learned that he became the king of all Israel, not just Judah, which would be the southern region, but of all the 12 tribes, up even up into the north. And and so now in that position, we see David continuing. I'm not sure how many years have passed. When we look at from chapter to chapter in Samuel, uh, it doesn't always line up that after chapter 5, immediately the next day chapter 6 happens. No, it could be 10 years that passes uh, and then all of a sudden we see uh, the next event that's recorded. Because it's not so much about the chronological order as it is the events that fit the narrative. And the narrative of, the, of Samuel, 2 Samuel especially, is the, the uh, nation of Israel under kings, under various kings. And so that's the focus. That's the intent. And so we pick up verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, uh, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So if you remember, uh, it was back, I think Scott gave the teaching when uh, the Ark of the Covenant was actually stolen by the Philistines and taken captive, and they went off with it. And, of course, they tried to do their thing uh, and put it in with, the, with their god, Dagon, and that never worked. Uh, they, uh, uh, they, they finally got so frustrated because God, uh, He inflicted them with all kinds of diseases. They had rats everywhere because they had taken from Israel the presence of God, what the symbolic presence of God, and it was so virtual and so real, really, that uh, at one point uh, uh, the Ark was stored in the temple of Dagon, which is a false god, and Dagon is the head of a I forget what it was, and the body's different, you know, like an animal and a human, weird kind of a thing, and they set the Ark there, and the next morning they came in, and of course the the, uh, the agon had fallen over, and his arms were broken. And uh, then the next day, they came in, and, and uh, his whole body was in half as he laid in front of the Ark of, of God. And that was just the beginning of their, their trials. So, eventually, they, they loaded it up on uh, young uh, cows, and it returned on its own to the Israelites. And they stored it at uh, Abiathar's house. And he's part of the Levitical tribe, and so they stored that there at his house, and it stayed there for 20 years. So this is 20 years later, okay? And David is saying, now let's bring this ark back where it belongs, and that would be Jerusalem, which now David is living in Jerusalem, that's the capital city, that's the headquarters, and David wants the ark of God the, the presence of God to be the centerpiece of all Israel. And so he puts it where he is actually living, where the, where the temple will be built. And so uh, if you remember, the Ark of the Covenant uh, was made by Moses at the command of God. And that would have been 400 years before David comes on the scene. And it was a wooden box. Uh, the word ark means box or chest. Uh, It was completely covered with gold and with an ornate gold lid uh, and had the mercy seat on the lid. And, of course, there were two cherubim with the wings pointing forward towards one another. And that's where God would position himself symbolically with the people. His presence literally would be there. That was kept uh, in the temple. So uh, if you want a little more detail on the ark itself, it was three feet By nine inches long and two feet three inches wide and two feet three inches high. So it was not a big, big box. It wasn't that large. Inside of it uh, were kept the tablets of the law that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai the second time, a jar of manna, and Aaron's rod that miraculously budded as a confirmation of his leadership when God raised him up. Uh, And uh, it says in the text here, that which is called by the name of the Lord. David arose, went, uh, verse 2, David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up the, from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So, literally, in the temple, God's presence would dwell. If you remember the Old Testament, um, Back when the Israelites were wandering for 40 years under Moses, uh, the ark was kept in the temple or the tabernacle. And uh, when, when the people would, they would all set their tents uh, to face the tabernacle in the middle. And they would come out in the morning and they would see Moses walk by and he would be heading to the tabernacle. The reason he was heading to the tabernacle is because He saw the cloud coming in, God's presence coming in. And he would go into the tabernacle and that cloud would come and hover over the tabernacle. Can you imagine that? Standing there at your tent looking up and seeing the presence, the manifest presence of God hovering over the tabernacle. And so this picture that David's trying to bring is that God is with us. His presence is with us. And that's what they're doing here. Now, the last time the Ark is mentioned is when it came back from the land of the Philistines in 1 Samuel 7, 1. And again, it was, uh, I said Abither, it's Abinadab. uh, That's the house where it was kept. Verse 3, And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and (laughs) Ahio, <laughs> I like that, not Ohio, it's probably more Ahio, but anyway, they, they went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So Abinadab's two sons, Uzzah and uh, Ahio... These guys are actually driving this, this cart, this new cart. It's new technology. Uh, when the ark was carried from, you know, whenever they would tear down the tabernacle with Moses, um, certain Levitical tribes, tribes within the Levitical order, would had responsibility for transferring and transporting all of the utensils of the tabernacle. The ark being one of them. And uh, when it was built, it was made with these rings on the top four corners and these long poles that would fit in. And that's how they would carry it, by holding it and walking with it. (coughs) And now uh, Uzzah and Ahio uh, have a new cart, probably an ox cart. And they're going to put the ark on the ox cart. That's going to be the way of transfer. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating. So, so this is an exciting moment for Israel that God's presence, which was stolen by the Philistines, returned. And now God is ready to come to the capital city, to the, the, the Jerusalem, you know, where the temple will be. And, uh, and Exodus... Now, one, one other thing to say. This idea of putting the ark on the cart, a new cart is not the way God prescribed or commanded the Levitical tribe to do it. If Take your Bible, let's turn together to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25. If you look with me at verse 12. Exodus 25, 12. It says, "...you shall cast four rings of gold for it for the ark, and put them on its four feet." Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. Look what it says next. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. So um, God's pretty clear. That's the only way that this ark is to be transported. And probably on the ox cart, I don't know if the poles were still there. That's even more of an indictment if, it, if they were, or maybe they were not there. It was only to be carried by Levites of the family of Kohath, the Kohathites. Now, turn in your Bible to Numbers chapter 4, verse 15. Not only is it important that they carry that they transport it a specific way but it's very important who is allowed to transfer the ark it says Aaron of course who is the high priest uh, and, and when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these but they must not touch the holy things this is the way God prescribed for Israel in transferring all of the furniture in the temple. They shall not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Koath are to carry. No one else is to carry them and not even the Koathites who are to carry them are to touch those things. You do it the way God prescribed and never, never make adjustments. The ark was nothing less than the burden of the Lord. And the burden of the Lord was to be carried on the hearts of the Levites. They are the priestly tribe. They are the representatives of God to the people. And they are the representatives of the people to God. And so there's a burden that a Levite was to bear. And this is it. We want God's presence, but we like to hitch his presence to new technology. That is our problem today. Here God has given a prescribed way of worship, a prescribed way of honoring him, a prescribed way of of dealing with his holiness, with his purity. Because we're not holy. We're not pure like God, right? So God has to tell us this is how we handle these things. And yet we are a people that are just... We're so caught up in our new ideas, our innovations, and we want to implement these innovations uh, in, the, in, the, in the worship of God. And I'm not trying to speak against instruments. We just saw and read where David and the, his, his band were marching and celebrating and singing and playing instruments. It's not about that. There are things that are, that are absolutely acceptable in worship. But when we start changing the the commands of God, when we stop listening to the Word of God and we come up with our fresh ideas and we ignore what what God says worship is, we can end up just like the Kohathites in this situation. And so it's real important that we understand that God is working with human flesh, therefore He had to have specific rules in order for them to be able to come near Him and they ignored the rule. John Wesley once said, it is new, not new things we need, but new fire. We really don't need so many new things. What we truly need is the presence of God. We, and you say, well, how do we get the presence of God? And I'm not talking about some emotional movement. I'm talking about a, an adherence to the Word of God where we know God makes Himself so clear to us where His character is so descriptive, He spells it out for us. So that as we understand more and more about Him, it does affect our emotions. It raises, you know, it heightens our excitement to worship Him and to give thanks to Him. That's what we need. Not some, you know, smoke machine. Like tonight, if this, you know, they have this lamp right here on live stream, you probably can't see it because it's facing me, but it's a light that you can look into. It's a studio light. It, it kind of allows me not to have shadows on my big nose. Okay, that's, that's what it's for. So I'm the only guy that can lay in the bottom of a pool on his back and still breathe. Okay, so this thing helps me. And, uh, and, and, but, but, the, but the reality is it's not there for me. It's there because it does allow those who are watching my live stream to get more of a facial gesture. Uh, We have a microphone, we've got a speaker system, um, you know, we've got all these things. We've got lighting in here so we can sit in here. We've got air conditioning. Aren't you glad for that? What if all that stuff immediately stopped? What would happen? I wonder if there would be any of us who would think, well, we're done. Might as well go home. If that's the case, if that's how we think and that's how we function in worship, we, we are not truly worshiping God. That says more about worshiping us than God. I need these things in order for me to feel what I need to feel when I come to church. God help us that we not be that kind of a church. Uh, basically, if everything went out, well, we got light outside still, so let's go out and sit under the under the little alcove, and we'll, we'll finish up out there. See, we're not going to stop worshiping God because of the innovations that fall apart or the technology that isn't working. That's real important. And we live in a day now where that technology is really heightened in the life of God's church. And I'm, again, let me say this. It's not wrong to use technology. Uh, live streaming is a wonderful blessing having a wi-fi is a wonderful blessing but if you can't have church when that stuff goes out you're way off track with the worship of god i hope we never forget that as a church family as we go forward and innovations are going to be made and more and more technology discovered i hope we never move away from what true worship is it's something that happens in here it's inside of us in 1 Samuel chapter 6, in verse 10, as we learned, that the Philistines transported the ark on the cart, they got away with it because they aren't God's covenant people. So they're able to transfer things on a cart. But that is not the truth for God's people. God gave specific laws, specific commands, and He expected them to follow it. So you say, well, these folks over here, they, they worship like that. Why can't we do it? Well, first of all, just because they call themselves a church doesn't mean that they're saved. Belonging to the church doesn't save anybody. True worshipers of God have a purity in their worship. They stick with that. They don't drift over here to this and that and whatever. So we've got to be so careful not to drift. Just because the Philistines had the ark on the cart was not an excuse for Israel to put the ark on the cart. They are to take their example from God himself. How do you do that? We do it through the word of God. That's, how, that's our example. Not from innovations, not from the ideas of other people. Now, it was Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, who drove the cart. Uzzah, the name means strength. Uzzah, Uzzah. Okay, strength. Uh, Ahio means friendly. Okay? It's possible, listen, church, It's possible to serve the Lord with new technology out of your strength and your friendliness and still miss the mark of God's expectation. We need to be very careful. So David is putting together a big production here. He's got the band. He's got the marching orders. He's got all the instruments. He's out there ready to dance before the Lord as the ark is coming up, and he's all excited about it. This big production. And verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So he's really into it, man. That's happening. Uh, We're often tempted, by the way, when we read this, to judge a worship experience by how it makes us feel. We see David celebrating and being expressive and being excited And we think, well, that's the way it ought to to always be when we worship God. Don't put God in that box. Worship is also quiet moments. For alone my soul waits in silence, for my hope is in Him. That's worshipful. It could be prayer. It could be the study or the reading of God's Word, meditating upon the Scripture. There's so many ways to worship God. But this is an appropriate way. But here's the deal. Here's how you know when it's okay to do what David's doing. When it fits the context. When it fits the event. When we have a baptism service, like we did the last time, during our worship service, while we were inside, we worshiped the Lord. Nobody was walking down the aisles with a tambourine, Woo-hoo! and jumping over the pew chairs and hanging from the light fixture. Nobody's doing that. Because we're all one in Christ. We're worshiping together. To do that would be to take attention off of Jesus and on you as you make your little presentation or your show. But when we go outside and we're there at a baptism service and we dunk someone down and we bring them up signifying new life in Christ, everybody is shouting and hooting and hollering, man. It's exciting. It fits the context. What David's doing here fits the context. He's bringing up the ark that's been sitting uh, at someone's house for 20 years, and it belongs as the centerpiece of Israel. He's excited about it. The people are excited about it. Please understand that. There's a a time for everything. There really is. The Bible says, Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. But not during communion. Right? See, it's, it's about context being mindful, being sensitive to others around us. Why? Because it's not about me doing worship the way I like. It's about being part of God's family with our eyes on Jesus. And therefore, it changes how I approach things. I, uh, I, I've worked with pastors over the years, and they've worked with me. We've I've been able to be part of some pastor fellowships. And there were times where we'd have a big unity service, a big gathering. And we, different churches had different ways of doing things. We might have a baptism service. And the Presbyterians are wanting to sprinkle, you know, um, and we're wanting to dunk. And, uh, and so we, we, we would say, okay, let's, let's not do baptism together. Because if your people see us baptizing by immersion... It's going to cause them to question what's going on. If our people see you sprinkling, they're going to think, hmm, what's going on here? This is weird. And so so you show sensitivity. And you don't bring your tribal practices at your church into a larger setting of the body of Christ where it might cause confusion. Very important that we... Be mature enough to understand that. To love someone in the body of Christ that doesn't worship at our church is an honor, it's a blessing, and it'll cost you something to do it. Because we come out of our church and we're proud of our church and we want to wear our church name and we want to say, well, at our church, this is what when you're coming together with other believers from other churches, none of that matters. It's who we are together in Christ. That's what matters. So we should keep the focus on Christ, amen? And not make it about our little tribal, you know, our little toys and things that we do. It's Very important. So, David's celebrating. Uh... I believe what David's doing. I'm sure he prayed before. He was excited about this huge production, and I don't think the production's evil at all. His intentions are right. But what happens here next is even though David was wanting to praise and worship God with a right heart, he forgot to follow God's rules. He let his, his... excitement overtake his obedience we could be guilty of that too well surely because what our intention is to do this which is a good intention it's a biblical intention obviously god's going to bless it god never blesses when we have to abandon following and obeying his word i've heard pastors pastors who use that phrase and say well It's easier to seek forgiveness than it is to ask permission. And they joke and they laugh about it, and that's their justice. They're they're justifying what they're doing, which is wrong. That's a a worldly concept. It's easier to, to ask forgiveness than ask permission? Seriously? How would that work with God? Well, we're about to see. We're going to find out real quick here. So in verse 6, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, there are people who read that and immediately become angry at God. What kind of a God? A man's trying to steady the ark when the oxen stumbled. What kind of a God would strike him dead for something like that? And what what they are revealing is they truly do not understand the character of God. In his holiness they don't recognize they're not desiring to recognize the purity of god the righteousness of god when god lays down an, a, a command he means it he's not just throwing out orders because he's the big guy upstairs it's because he is god he's holy he's just and you and i are sinners And the only way in the Old Testament that they could have any semblance of relationship with him was if they followed what he commanded. He actually laid down the laws because he loved them. He wanted them to come near to him. But not at the expense of disobedience. So it's possible to do something with a right intention, and yet the outcome is terribly wrong. And that's exactly exactly what happens. He puts out his hand. Turn, if you will, again, please, to Numbers chapter 4. Go back to Numbers chapter 4. And let's look at verse 15. Here's another example of the same thing that people get frustrated with God over. And when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary. As the camp sets out after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are all things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Koath are to carry. Not the sons of Aaron. The sons of Aaron would have been... Uh, Nadab and Abihu, they were priests under their father. And we know that in the Scripture, they, they brought a strange fire into the holy place to light the incense. And because they didn't do it exactly as God ordered, God struck both of them dead on the spot. So here Uzzah, back in our story, makes this split decision to protect the ark from falling to the ground, and in so doing, he disregards God's command and presumes upon God's holiness. It seemed right in the moment, but it cost him his life. Even our momentary decisions matter to our God. You cannot use the excuse, well, you know, I just, just, I wasn't thinking about it, this is why I did it. But you're saying that because you're justifying what you did. What you should do is say, you know, I didn't give the give right thought to that. I am really sorry. I shouldn't have done that. See, that's a heart that's ready to confess and repent as opposed to making excuse for the fact that you in the split second made a decision. Here Uzzah, he is uh, in a bad place, man. He reaches out and touches the ark and immediately God strikes him dead. Simply because he didn't keep the promise regarding how he is to approach God, a holy God. It's really this really wasn't about a a split second decision though. Uh, let me say this to you: three things about Uzzah. Uzzah erred in going along with the decision to carry the ark on a cart. That was his first mistake. Had nothing about reaching out and suddenly to try to study the ark. When he went along with putting the ark, the ark on an ox cart, he knew it. He knew it was wrong. He's a Kohathite. He knew it was wrong, but he did it. He erred in thinking that just because the ark rested in his father's house for 20 years, that God would somehow overlook his indiscretion of touching the ark. You know, I've been around the ark. God let it stay in our house for 20 years, and so I'm very familiar with it, and and, and I'm okay, I can do this. Oh, no. Listen, God is always holy. He never drops His holiness. We have to always respect the holiness of God. And that's why, and when I say that, that, that leads some people to think, well, then we need to always be somber and quiet and we shouldn't show any emotion. No, no. That holy God allows us to celebrate at times. He allows us to express in very vivid ways. Sure, you can do that, but not at the expense of obedience. One of the real issues that I have with the charismatic church is oftentimes in charismatic churches, they have practices that are absolutely not in Scripture or a practice, they practice what is is in Scripture, but it only occurred once in Scripture for a specific situation. It was not to be duplicated. There is no biblical word for being slain in the Spirit. That's not in the Bible. When you look at being slain in the Spirit the way some some Christians use it, it doesn't line up with Scripture because when people were knocked down, when the power of God did knock people down in the Bible, nine times out of ten, it was unbelievers that were knocked down. Not believers. Unbelievers. Why? Because God was manifesting to unbelievers that he is real. It caught their attention. If you're a believer, do you really need to be knocked down? You're to walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus said to Thomas, you're blessed because you got to see. You can touch my hands. You can feel the scar from the nails. Thomas, you're blessed. You get to see it. But it's even more blessed to never have the chance to do what you're doing, Thomas, and touch me, and still believe. That's even a greater blessing. And so I, I just I'm, what I'm trying to say, I, I want to be careful. I want to show charity. But speaking as a shepherd of a flock, that what we do must line up with Scripture. If it doesn't line up with Scripture, we shouldn't do it. We don't have that freedom, and oftentimes, what gets what gets uh, credited credited to the Holy Spirit is actually from an unholy spirit. When you look on YouTube and see these services where people start barking like a dog, in another service where people have this what they, what is phrased holy laughter. And everybody starts laughing. The preacher starts laughing. And people, they, 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 they pan out to the front row and people are sitting there and just break out in laughter and roll down on the ground. And other people rolling on the ground. Listen, nowhere in the Bible does the Holy Spirit conduct himself that way with people. In fact, nowhere in the Bible does the Holy Spirit ever bring attention to him. What did Jesus say? When I leave, He will come, the Holy Spirit. He will remind you of everything that I have said. The Holy Spirit's job is not to be front and center and be the show. The Holy Spirit is to conform us privately, quietly, into the image of Jesus Christ. He always brings us to God. He doesn't bring us to himself. So we need to be really careful that when, and look, I know what happens, and even some of you maybe have come up in that environment, or maybe you came from that environment. It's what you're taught when you're little. You just, that's the way it is. You don't know different. But that's why we study the Bible. I can promise you that when I was a boy growing up, my parents meant well. We were part of a, a, a movement where the theology was, was works righteous. We laugh about it now. Uh, when my mom was a little girl, uh, everything is measured. There's the yeses and there's the noes. You can do this. Don't you dare do this. And then you look at Scripture and it goes, hmm. No, it's not about that at all. It's about the grace of God. That where sin abounds, grace abounds the more. And so we just need to be careful. Does this make sense to you? Everything we do, we should be able to substantiate from the Word of God. And here's the problem when we allow emotion to drive us or when we focus on these tribal practices that are not in the Scripture. The reason we fall for it is because we're not discerning. And the reason we're not discerning is because we're not in the Word how can you discern right from wrong if you don't know right from wrong? The truth of God's Word. It says, the tr- Jesus said, the truth will set you free. you got to know the truth to be free. So if truth will free me, what's the opposite of truth? Error. And if truth frees, what does error do? What's the opposite of freedom? Bondage. I can either walk in the truth of God's Word and be free or I can experience what I think is true, but it's actually error and I'm experiencing bondage. I've even said to people in counseling, they're miserable. And I'll say, isn't that interesting? Truth frees, error binds. You're telling me today that you feel all bound up. So I think the answer for us is trying to find out where you have believed error and replaced it instead of the truth. You put error in place of the truth. Let's find where you're in error doctrinally, and let's walk in freedom. It's simple as that. I mean, this is how God works. So here, here we see Uzzah on his own doing something that's not biblical. He erred in thinking that just because the ark rested in his father's house for 20 years, God's going to overlook his indiscretion of touching the ark. He also erred in thinking that he was more holy than the ground beneath the ark. He thought he was more holy than the ground beneath the ark. Otherwise, why did he reach out to study the ark? Why wouldn't he just let the ark fall to the ground? The reason why, he didn't want the ark to get dirty. He didn't want the ark to get dirty. So I'm going to touch it with my dirty hands. By the way, is the ground evil? Does the ground sin? When the sun shows up and the ground becomes parched and dry and cracks, is it disobeying God's creation and the rules of creation, the laws of No, it is not. It's in perfect harmony with God. And then when the rains come, what happens to that parched, hard, cracked ground? It softens, and now it becomes mud, as it should. The sun comes back out, and it begins to dry out again. The ground obeys God. It would have been better if He let the ark touch the ground than to touch His hands, which were sinful. I just think it's very important. David said in verse 8, he was angry... It says he was angry because the Lord had brought out, uh, had broken out against Uzzah. Now, let's ex- let's, before we go further, and then we'll explain it more, but it's not that David is mad at God. He's not angry with God. He's angry at himself. Because the second that this happens, he probably then remembers, oh my goodness, we didn't put the poles back in. We didn't carry this ark the way God instructed us to carry it. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So when it says afraid there, in the Hebrew, I want you to think of fear, the fear of the Lord. Which, by the way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The Bible says to fear the Lord is to hate what is evil that's the fear of the lord david just came into a a fresh awakening what we did was evil he has a healthy fear of god all of a sudden which is wonderful and he was afraid there it is of that of the lord that day and he said how can the ark of the lord come to me who am i to move the ark at first he's he's questioning himself he's angry with himself He's even confused over what has happened. Now, I believe that before David brought the ark to Jerusalem, he he really believed God wanted that. And I believe God did want that. So here he's doing the right thing the wrong way. And I'm thankful, and this is why David has a heart after God. As soon as he recognized that God couldn't bless what he was doing, even though he's doing the right thing, he realized we must have done it the wrong way. See, that's, that's a godly, mature Christian who you're doing something right, but it doesn't come out right. Maybe you need to go back and, Lord, okay, I really believe you wanted that, but Lord, maybe I handled it the wrong way. You know, you need to go talk to this person about this, this thing in the relationship that's separating the two of you. And you go and you go with the wrong spirit. You're still carrying some resentment for what they did, and so you you bite a little bit as you talk to them. You're doing the right thing going to them, but you're not doing it the way the scripture teaches you. Seek God for forgiveness, forgive them, go to them with a right heart. So, David was not willing, verse 10, to take the Ark of the Lord into the city of David. So he stops right there on the spot. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now when we think of the Gittite city, we think of a Philistine city. But people who lived in the Philistine city, not all of them were Philistines. And the Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Uh, By the way, the city... uh, That Obed Edom is from, this city called uh, 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 Gittim, is not the same Philistine city. It's actually not far from where the ark started to fall off the cart. It's in the land of Judah. This guy, Obed Edom, he's actually of the tribe of Levi and of Korath, which are the cousins to the Kohathites. So his family were the people who would carry the ark. Okay, And this is where David takes the ark after the incident with Uzzah. He takes it to a Levite who is part of the group that is to transfer the utensils and the furniture pieces of the temple. And he leaves it there with him. And, and he leaves it for how long? Three months. And it was told David, King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So I'm wondering if David took the ark to Obed-Edom and walked away thinking, who am I to touch the ark, not touch it, but to even think that I should uh, bring the ark? Uh, I'm just going to leave it there. I, you know, It's not good for man to be around the ark. Let Obed-Edom handle it. He's one of the Levites that can do that. And then God blesses Obed-Edom. I mean, just begins to pour out blessing after blessing. Why? Because Obed Edom understands how the ark is to be treated. He shows he does not presume upon the holiness of God, he follows the laws of God. And God blesses that household. Now, David is blown away. So, David takes the ark there, and Obed Edom. Uh, is a true blessing. If you want the passages that talk about Obed-Edom, uh, 1 Chronicles 26.8, write that down, 1 Chronicles 26.8. All these were of the sons of Obed-Edom with their sons and brothers, able men, qualified for the service. Uh, verse 12, these divisions of the gatekeepers corresponding to their chief men had duties just as their brothers did, ministering in the house of the Lord. So they were those who were to minister in in and around the temple, okay? Excuse me. And then in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, and when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out after the sons of Coath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things. So he is part of that group, okay? And his house is blessed because he obeys God. Now, uh, verse 12, so David went... So, so it stays there for three months. David hears that the, the Obed-Edom's household has been blessed because the ark is present and he is caring for it in, the, in a way that shows respect to God. And so in verse 12, the latter part of the verse, so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, so now he's going to, pick it back up you know they're going to carry it in the staves they're going to they're going to make sure they do this the right way and they take six steps and they stop and David offers sacrifice to God he's going to make sure that we honor God for who he is and uh, it says he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal probably a lamb and David danced before the Lord with all his might. Why? Because God didn't strike anybody dead. That's why, I mean, he's, he's thinking, "Woo! all right, let's celebrate. No, he's actually worshiping God. Folks, if you think for a second that the only way to worship God is in silence, you're wrong. If you think for a second people who are expressive are wrong to worship God that way, you're wrong. Here, the king the greatest king of Israel is dancing before the Lord. But remember, context matters. He's outside in a marching situation. He's got all the instruments playing. He's just having a good time. And they're all having a good time. This is not, da- look, the, he is the subject of this story. But that doesn't mean he's the only one who's dancing, he's not. And David was wearing a linen ephod. What is a linen ephod? It's what the priests wore. So David and all, look at this, David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. It's not a situation where David alone is the one who's getting all excited and doing something. No, everybody with him. He's dressed like all the Levites that are with him. He has taken off his royal robe. He's taken off his kingship, the attire of a king, and he's simply coming as one who worships God in holiness. I love this. David was glad to know that the presence and the glory of God could bring a blessing when they obeyed the Scriptures. Interesting, in the book of 1 first Chronicles, first, if you want to write it down, 1 Chronicles 15, Verses 12 through 15. 1 Chronicles 15, 12 through 15. It records David's instructions about bringing the ark up to Jerusalem. What we're going to find is oftentimes what we don't see in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel, we'll find in the book of Chronicles or in the book of uh, the Kings. Okay? And so here we have a further understanding of this experience. They're walking the ark to Jerusalem. And so he gives more detail to what is going on. So it says in 1 Chronicles 15, 12, David said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. I need you as Levites, as the priestly tribe, to consecrate yourselves. We're going to be handling, not literally, but we're going to be transferring... The presence of God. So let's prepare ourselves spiritually. Because, verse 13, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So David's very much aware why Uzzah was struck dead. Do you see David getting mad at God anywhere in this story? Never. There's no reason for a Christian to be upset with God for taking out Uzzah. Even the king himself realizes and says, we did it wrong. We didn't take the time to read the command of God and how to transfer the ark. So the priest and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So this entire story emphasizes God's holiness And how we should always show respect to Him as a holy God. It could lead us to a particular view of God that isn't necessarily whole when we start doing things that aren't in Scripture. Our worship should line up with the Word. Always. There's a time for shouting. There's a time for clapping. We Generally every Sunday we have moments where a clapping will occur. It might be after a song. Now, I want to say this about that. When we sing a song, and that song brings us into a moment of recognition of the holiness, of the greatness, of the the beauty of God, Um, sometimes clapping would be inappropriate. Maybe it's a moment, it's solemn. You know what I'm saying? There's other moments when it's very appropriate. But here's what we have to guard against. And I've pastored for a number of years, and I've seen it often, that it just becomes something we do at the end of a song. We applaud. We're applauding the song. We're not worshiping. We need to always be mindful. There's a right time for everything. And there's a wrong time. And so, being careful there. David is recognizing that, and he is telling the Levites, let's make sure we do this thing the right way. And in doing it the right way, listen, David is dancing before the Lord. It's right. It's right. It's okay. Some of you would be like, oh, my goodness. I mean, if you were there watching this happen, and you see the king of Israel take off his robe, and he's just simply got his ephod, the, the linen ephod, which is, he's totally clothed. And he's dancing before the Lord along with the Levites and the, and the singers and everything. Some of you would have a conniption, <laughs> thinking maybe that that's inappropriate. No. In certain places it would be. In certain settings, yes, but not in every setting. I hope we get that point. This expression of David's heart showed that he had a genuine emotional link to God. And we should all have genuine emotional links to God. There are two great errors that we want to avoid in the worship of God. Write these down, if you will. Number one, the error of making emotions the center of our Christian worship. The error of making emotions the center of our Christian worship. You could even expand it and say our Christian life. Number two, the second error, the error of living an emotionally detached Christian worship or Christian life. It's wrong for us to make emotions the center of our worship of God, and it's wrong to detach ourselves from emotion as we worship God. We need to find that that right place where God has created you, body, soul, spirit. He's given you a mind. He's given you emotions. And He gives you freedom to worship Him with all of your being, the Scripture says, with all of your uh, uh, might, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. We should do it. Just don't be controlled by it. Amen? In the Christian life, especially in our worship of God, our emotions should not be manipulated, neither should they be repressed. They should be part of a real, vibrant understanding of God. It's okay. It's okay. You guys can't hear me probably, but I sit on the front row, and I'm telling you all through worship, as I'm listening to the song, we're we're singing in the middle of the song, and I'm singing the words, and then What I'm singing is like, oh, my goodness, that's so good, that truth. And I'll just right there, amen. (laughs) You've heard it. I'm not doing it for you to hear, obviously, but look, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm agreeing. I'm excited about that. Now, if all of a sudden I get up and start running around the place, people will just look at me like I'm a freak and get up and leave, okay? That would be wrong. <laughs> and then others would get up and run with me, I, I'm sure. Ray Marie, you'd be right there with me, wouldn't you? <laughs> and in and, and some settings, it would be appropriate. It would be. See? So we just need to be careful and be sensitive to, look, never do anything where it abandons Scripture or it doesn't take into full consideration the purity and the holiness and the righteousness of God, Amen. Okay, we're about to finish this up. Some people have made the false claim that David was dancing immodestly. You know that he was dressed down to his skibbies. You know he's he should have he, he he hardly has any clothes on. I've heard preachers say that. That's not at all the situation. Okay. Uh, as he danced before the Lord. First Chronicles tells us. again, let's go to First Chronicles chapter 15. go there if you will. First Chronicles 15, verse 27 and 28, I'll read it for you. First Chronicles 15: 27 and 28. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark. And the singers and the Chananiah, chen- the leader of the music of the singers. David wore a linen ephod. Where in that do you find that David has stripped down to almost nothing? Well, people, well his, his wife, uh, McCall, she's the one that said he was indignant. He was wrong. No. She was upset because the king doesn't look like a king. He took off his royal robe. Now he's simply a child of God, worshiping his God. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting, all of Israel, to the sound of the horn, trumpets, cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. What passage is it? Scott, look it up for me. The passage where it says, um, uh, speaks of uh, the king of glory, uh, can come in through the gates. Uh, who is the King of Glory? Uh, somebody know where that's at in the Psalms? It's one of the Psalms. That Psalm is about this experience. Now, I can't remember the word, so if you can find it, we'll read it. Uh, but who is the King of Glory? Put that in, I think it'll bring it up. 24/7. Okay, thank you. So turn in your Bible to Psalm 24, verse 7. I didn't study that this afternoon. But, I, but it just comes to me, and I think it, it's very fitting. It's another picture that we have, another, you know, this is like a paradigm. Paradigm is something that, it's the same thing, but you see it differently. You see it from different angles. Here's another angle. You said 24, verse 7? Okay, thank you. Okay, so, uh, yeah, let's just read the whole, The earth is the Lord's, and full, fullness thereof, the world and all, those who dwell therein for the for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers who shall ascend the hill of the lord and who shall stand in his holy place of course you know the ark was kept in the holy place he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully he will receive blessing from the lord and righteousness from the god of his salvation such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of God, Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, as they're coming to the temple, the gates open. People are standing there at the city gates as David's bringing up, marching with those, uh, the, the Levites and all the people coming with him. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. You can just almost get this picture, okay, as this thing's happening. And the king, that the King of Glory, capital K, we're not talking about King David here, may come in and then the people on the wall would say back to David as he is shouting this out, who is this King of Glory? This is almost like a hymn they're singing. The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king, this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of... Could you imagine being there, all these instruments, and all this shouting and this song going back and forth as the ark is being brought into the temple or brought into the gates of the city? Isn't that awesome? I get chills, man. I got chills right now when I think about that. See, when we get to heaven, don't you kind of want God to play back Some video, you know, of some Old Testament experiences. I want to see Elijah on top of Mount Carmel. And I want to see the 450 prophets of Baal out there cutting themselves and doing their thing to try to bring down fire. And then watch as as Elijah just prays a simple prayer, God, show these these knuckleheads that you are the one true God. And fire just comes down and zaps that sacrifice. I want to see that, man. Wouldn't that be awesome? Oh, man, this is going to be so much fun. Woo! It really is. Then we can run around. <laughs> yeah, Ray Marie, I got a feeling when you get to heaven, there's going to be a lot of running and praising, and you're going to have a great time. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window. And saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel. He distributed both to men and women a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. What a great day of worship. Man, that's a great Sunday, isn't it? To come to the church and worship God, just uninhibited and love Him and study His word and then at the end, we have a big get-together dinner, you know. We lay out the spread. No COVID, of course. We lay out the spread, and everybody sits down and just has a big meal together. We all go home with some scraps, man, some leftovers. Wouldn't that be a wonderful day? Amen? <laughs> hey, you're going to experience that in heaven. That's, be, that's what it's all about right there. So McCall didn't appreciate it. She was not at all excited about David's worship. But who cares? I love this next part. Look at verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. But Macall, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants. Again, that's misinterpreted. People think that means he was naked or close to it. No, he took off his priestly or his royal robe. And look, then she said this uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David comes home with this exciting news and he's bringing home food and he's just so excited and he's met at the door by that old wet mop. (laughs) And David said to McCall, I love this, it was before the Lord... "'who chose me above your father and above all his house "'to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, "'and I will celebrate before the Lord.'" I mean, good grief. The guy spent, what, 10 years running from Saul. God finally honored and brought David to be king. He's excited. He's filled with appreciation. I will make, Look at this. "'I will make myself yet more contemptible than this.'" And I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. What is he saying? He's saying, you think that they regret what I did, but what I did was so right and so holy before God. My heart was right. They did not see me the way you're describing them. They knew that I was worshiping God. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Wow. There's a little postscript. Some people might think that God cursed her from that day forward. Uh, Most scholars believe that it was David who would not be with her after that. So she never bore a child. And uh, David was absolutely right in his worship of God. But remember, he did it wrong the the first time. But he had a right heart of repentance. I wonder if our pride gets in the way of us recognizing when we're doing a good thing in a wrong way and somebody points it out to us. Would our pride keep us from receiving what they're saying and consider what they're saying and, and confess that before God has said so that we might do it right the next time? Would we be so humble as to look to them and say, thank you for pointing that out? I'll be honest with you. When somebody comes to you in that kind of a situation and says something to you in a loving spirit, um, it's still hard to receive it, isn't it? Because you really had a good intention in mind. You weren't trying to do something evil. So it it almost feels like, oh, why are you making a big deal out of that? But you might be missing what God's trying to say to you through them. So maybe an appropriate response when they come to you with a right spirit is to just say, you know what? Um, I'd like to take that before the Lord. And thank you for bringing it. Let me take it before the Lord. Because you're not right in your spirit right then and there to say, oh, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't. So just at least be honest about that. I'm going to take that before the Lord. And then do it. And if God speaks to you, they were right. What you did was a, you had good intentions, but you did it the wrong way. And you're able to confess that as sin. How do you know it was wrong, how you did it? Because you looked at the Word. The Word confirmed what that person said. Now you need to go back and thank the person. Thank you for coming to me with the right spirit. And you were right. I, it was, I, my, my heart was right, but I, I didn't handle that the right way. Please forgive me. And go to the person and ask forgiveness. See, that's, that's, that's what David modeled for us tonight. That when we have good intentions, we can still mess up. We can still fall short if we don't follow the Word of God. Always let the Word speak in your life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, tonight it is, uh, again, um, Your Word that that really reaches our heart. Uh, There is nothing that a man can say that would bring conviction. Conviction is the, he can bring condemnation, but not conviction. Conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, tonight, if there's any conviction that's in this room, in any of our hearts, I pray that we'll recognize it is the Holy Spirit who is trying to speak to us. And he's not doing it to belittle us, to condemn us. He's doing it to conform us to the image of Jesus. May we receive your word, Lord, tonight. And may we allow the word to find root in our heart. And Lord, may we continue to grow as your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you, church. Have a wonderful Friday and Saturday, and we'll see you. By the way, again, if if you want to come to the funeral, uh, 2 o'clock Crossroad Community, I think it's Community Church. Mike Lyle is the pastor. And uh, that's where we'll have the service, in Sebastian, 2 o'clock on Saturday. God bless. And we'll see you Sunday morning.